Okay, hi everybody. Welcome to Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, uh, your favorite philosophy comedy podcast. I'm Taylor Carmen, and I teach philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University, specializing in European philosophy, mostly of the 20th century. Uh, and I'm Eric Kaplan. I'm a philosophy uh, writer and a writer writer. Um, and so I have a question just to kick things off for you, Taylor. Okay. I, you're, you're a philosopher and you're also a musician and you've studied uh, philosophy of perception. Mm -hmm. So I was listening to a course on the greatest piano pieces ever. Ah. And they were talking about Chopin. Ah. And we're listening to this prelude and it kind of went something like this. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 bum. And as I was listening to it, I was thinking, it's pretty clear that the the bomb 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 part uh, yeah. is dark, yeah, and the part is light, right. But then I was like, I need to ask Taylor, how could that be? That's how can it be pretty question. clear that sounds are dark or light? Yeah, because dark or light are visual things, and sounds are ah. auditory. Things. This is a really good question, and it leads into a very long and complicated sort of discussion about the unity of our bodily senses. We have one body that sort of synthesizes all our experience, and it comes as one big bundle. And then if you look closer, it looks like there's visual input, there's auditory input, there's touch and taste and smell, and all these look like they're in different channels. So are they really so distinct? I mean, nowadays people say taste and smell are just one sense rather than two. So how do you divide them? And what about your sense of balance? And how does that relate to your sense of touch? And you can tell if you're cold or hot or... I mean, perception is very complicated, but there's this unity about it, which... Um, it's puzzling if you start out with the idea that all the different channels are just completely discrete and don't have anything really in common. This has a name, actually. It was the Molyneux problem or Molyneux's question, which John Locke mentions about, like, if somebody were born blind and but they could, you know, they had been touching, like, cubes and spheres and so on, so they knew those shapes by touch, and then suddenly you could restore their vision. By looking at these things, would they be able to see the difference? And this was a big debate in the 18th century. Turns out to be a very complicated mess of a priori and empirical questions. Anyway, I'm yammering on too much, but... Um, well, I sprung this on you with that preparation, so in your defense. Your example is a really good one, though, because it does look like there's something kind of obvious about low sounds and dark. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking yeah. that nobody would say, oh, the bomb, bomb, bomb. That's the light part. Yeah. Nobody would say that. Right, exactly. But, you know, sometimes you hear people, either they're born or they get from tripping out on psychedelics uh, synesthesia. Yes. And they're like, 17 is obviously mauve. Yeah. Is this a version of that phenomenon that's just shared by everybody? That's a good question. But just why on earth would... Yeah. Bum, well, bum, bum, why would that be dark? It looks like we all do share some of those intuitions that are hard to justify or rationalize, whereas the synesthesia cases look really idiosyncratic. Like, so, I mean, there's no regularity about what numbers people will associate with colors when they have that. It looks like completely arbitrary. There seems like there's something less arbitrary about this, and there may be some story you can tell. I also would have said that the bomb, bomb, yeah. bomb was more um, umami, uh -huh. that I, it, felt, it felt more uh -huh. satisfying, like a like a thick, greasy meal. Yeah. And it was more like 
the feeling of walking through mud as opposed to like tripping lightly through something light. Yeah. Um, and maybe I would say that maybe that was like citrus Uh or something. Yeah. 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 Um, but what on earth is going on? I, I don't understand this. I wouldn't say I'm terrified, but I am puzzled. <laughs> One of the Gestalt psychologists has this um, illustration, and that you get very routine, regular, predictable responses from everybody about this. They show people two drawings. One is a drawing of really jagged angles and stars, sort of like uh, acute angles, you know, kind of shape. Looks sharp. And uh, the other one is sort of round, cloud-like kind of shapes and so on. And they say one of these, and I can't remember the words, but one of these is like zikstrik, and the other is blum blum, you know. And everybody will associate the words with the shapes, just no problem at all. And there it looks like maybe even more so. But, you know, I, I've thought about this sometimes thinking, well, maybe there is, you could reconstruct some kind of story about the round shape figure is kind of like what your mouth is doing when you make the um bloom bloom kind of sound and the tick tick zick tick sort of sounds are somehow relying on sharp angles and stuff but i i it seems like we don't have to think about it in order to make those associations what i would say is that our sensory experience is primitively integrated uh-huh. in a way that we don't have to think about so here's a, here's another sort of coincidence that when you think about it starts to seem really kind of astonishing when you hear a sound from some direction you can look right in that direction right at where the sound is coming from now how how do you do that like it's self evident when you hear the sound uh, as long as you've got you know i guess two ears um yeah and you're oriented in space this is going back to the molyneux question it really ha- you know that question looks like it's centering on do you have some primitive conception of spatial relations so that you can understand them visually and in a tactile way. And it looks like we do insofar as we can hear a sound and then look around and look at where the sound is coming from. Um, That's just so hardwired and baked in and intuitive that, again, you don't have to think about it in order to be able to do it. So there's something basic about that kind of sensory integration. And is it integrated with our emotions also? Well, probably. I mean, that, bomb, bomb. Yeah. that sounds almost like rocking, soothing, calming, and that seems like adver- you know, arousing, annoying, irritating. That second part sounds right. You know, the first part, it's, you know, if you remember Jaws, the ominous, sort of terrifying sound was a deep, low rumbling, boom, 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 boom kind of sound yeah. like a shark coming. So that the deep rumbling sound might be worrisome too in its own way. Might be, wor- but they, it's yeah. a different buffet of emotions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's a kind of nice tinkling sound of... Not all are good and not all are bad. Right, chimes in a breeze is very nice to hear, even though it's for high frequencies and so on. So it may be to do with rhythms and volume. Like uh, the chimes in the wind, they're kind of quiet and they're soft. And maybe the tones are sort of nice intervals and harmonies. I mean, there's another interesting Mm -hmm. thing about music is that, um, you know, we respond very differently to different intervals and harmonies and tone patterns. So everybody likes a one five, yeah. uh, and the the major thirds are nice. The minor thirds, people disagree. People are tempted to say the minor keys are sad, which is not always really right. But there's some crucial affective difference you get with minor and major, and then these uh, tritones that are and dissonances that are clearly weirder, for better or worse. And yeah, how music is intelligible at all to us is fascinating i think i mean how does it seem to actually have any significance affective significance at all because i suspect cats and dogs are not hearing any of that because they even if they sit and will listen to it 
we I think it's quite opaque, at least to me, what they might be thinking about it. They don't seem to have any of the human responses to like, ah, that's nice or that's sweet or it doesn't seem to mean anything to them. It's not registering. I noticed that the dog will leave the room yeah. <laughs> right before the music resolves. Like oh, it really? doesn't seem to be <laughs> really well, not that not on purpose. My point is the dog's coming and going is random. And it's not waiting for the end of the movement of the symphony before it gets some dog food. It just doesn't care. Uh, is this a piece that it's heard that's like conditioned or is this on, even on no, first just hearing? No, in general, on first hearing. the dog seems not to care oh. about oh, I see the patterns of tension and release and satisfaction that we do. Oh. I thought you meant it was anticipating. No, I meant the, the opposite. Then. I meant that yeah, the dogs yeah, yeah. coming and going random. Are random. I think that's right. Have nothing I think to, to do them, with the, the music. And I sometimes think, you know, we might get a glimmer into what music sounds like to animals if you put on two pieces of music at the same time and you've got them conflicting with each other, because then you can't get your bearings about what the tonal structure is. Two or three things at once, it's chaos. It may well be that it's more like that to them, just listening to what we think is intelligible and coherent music. Merleau-Ponty talks about this integration of the sensory stuff. It's a part of Gestalt psychology. It's been, like I said, it was a big... In fact, Cassirer said it was like the greatest kind of intellectual cause célèbre in, you know, in philosophy, this Molyneux question, which was like, I guess it was hard to remember what a big deal this was because everybody weighed in on it. Leibniz thought the blind person with restored vision could recognize the shapes. Locke said the person couldn't. So it sort of maybe depended on whether you were an empiricist or a rationalist, what you thought about this. Much later, there were people who had serious cataracts removed, and the results were inconclusive because it's, it turns out it'd be empirically much more complicated question because if you hadn't, haven't had vision for your whole childhood, your brain hasn't developed and formed the synaptic connections that will allow you to see. So uh -huh. vision is not just a matter of having good eyes like windows into your soul. It's like the whole brain has to develop in such a way. So it may be that there's no empirical answer to Molyneux's question. But it does, it does, here's what I, one thing I think you might take away from it, which is that if you start out thinking all the senses are totally discrete and maybe incommensurable, qualitatively different, you know, not connected intrinsically in any way, but fused together by arbitrary associations, it will be a real mystery how our experience can have the kind of overall unity, the, call it the organic unity that it actually has. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here and be right back. Right. So I wonder if the answer is uh, we are organic beings that open onto an organic reality. Mm -hmm. It's just a mistake to think that when I'm experiencing a bright day, that the sound of the wind and the brightness of the light are two different yeah. uh, silos. <laughs> They're not, right, right, we exactly. don't experience yeah. life yeah. in a, in like use the expression channels that this channels right. metaphor is wrong. It's not like the eyes yeah. get their information and the, the the ears get their information. Right. And then it's up to some mysterious uh, master uh, to figure out how to put those together. No, the whole guy, the whole lady is getting the information and through a bunch of um, 
integrated uh, uh, organic uh, affordances or something. Yeah, and you've got maybe some kind of innate synthetic capacity, which is already putting them together before you're even aware of it. Like even calling it synthetic might make the mistake of thinking that there's something separate that needs to be synthesized. No, exactly right. Yeah. And um, how do you synthesize it? then? I mean, um, if you're a radical empiricist like Hume, it looks like all these connections will just be arbitrary just like uh, an alphabet. An alphabet is genuinely arbitrary. Like there's nothing inherent about those letters. You ha- somebody has to teach you how to make the associations between the letters and the phonemes or the sounds or something like that. But nobody has to teach you any of this. You sort no. of know it. And I, if you think about the organism, you know, the organism really is unified. I mean, philosophers have sort of always known this. And so again, going back to the five senses, there's not really just five senses. I mean, they don't come parceled out and counted up quite like that. Uh, I think Aristotle said that a foot that's not attached to a body is not a foot. Right. And um, that's, I think there's something really right about that. It's Mm -hmm. like the the whole is kind of prior to the parts or the whole is what makes the parts the parts. So it's really not like a mechanism or a machine where you can just replace one part and the rest all remains exactly the same. Your eyes are connected to your brain, which is connected to your spinal cord. Uh, I might have mentioned this in a previous episode, but I heard it recently and it impressed me. I didn't know this. Part of the nervous system is in the digestive system and governing digestion. So they call it the gut brain, I think. Yeah. Um, so it's like every, all the so-called parts are so interwoven with each other to make this complicated thing, which has, after all, come together through a long process of evolution and random change and so on. It's not like the Ikea furniture that comes with the parts labeled and you stick them together um, afterwards. It's like there's this whole thing which started out as a tadpole or something and then gradually got differentiated into this sort of more complex thing. But the unity is basic. Uh, uh, This is what some of these more holistic biologists 100 years ago were talking about before molecular biology took over biology. But Merleau-Ponty and Kurt Goldstein and people were very much impressed still with hanging on to this kind of Aristotelian intuition that the, the whole is somehow more basic than the parts. Right. And there are organisms that have a nerve net um, where it's like the whole jellyfish responds to the environment. It yeah. doesn't have it doesn't have a an eye really. And yeah. and I remember reading somewhere, it might have been in that book Other Minds, that our nervous yeah. system might be a clue together of a of a linear nervous system and a nerve net nervous system. And that's oh. why we're capable of two kinds of judgments. One of them oh. is the sort of linear judgment that there's a red spot uh at you know at three o'clock, you know? And then the other one is things are basically going okay with me, or I kind of feel like crap today, which is a holistic judgment of how things are going sort of in me or in the whole environment. Oh, that sounds like... uh, And it seems like we have both, Yeah, right? That sounds like understanding and uh, attunement or disposedness in Heidegger. Interesting. The kind of intelligence, future-looking, action-guiding understanding, and then on the other hand, the kind of what he calls befindlichkeit, like how you find yourself, mood, attunement, things are going well or badly, or how you feel. Um, Yeah. And the interesting thing is they're meshed together somehow. So Well, that leaps back to music, because music kind of, one of the things we most like about it is it expresses our mood. Yeah. But then, as you know, as a musician, it can express it by 
extremely precise nerdy decisions <laughs> about what note to play and how quickly to play yeah, it. Yeah, it has structure. It has intelligible structure. With It's even yeah. kind of mathematizable. I mean, there's even kind of formal yes. relations and mathematical relations. And that the other fascinating thing about that is that if you press too much on those formal relations, you find out that they're very messy, actually. Because interesting, uh, how so? Well, in that uh, this thing that the ancients knew about, and it's even called the Pythagorean comma, that if you take harmonies of like an interval of a fifth and go up a certain number of them and reach the octave, you'll get a different note than if you go up just by thirds or fourths or sixths or whatever. In other words, you might think looking at the piano keys that it, that all those intervals will you'll wind up on the same note, but it ends up slightly flat or slightly sharp. Uh -huh. I'm not giving a very good explanation of it, but all these things we've named thirds and fifths and sixths and so on. An octave is well-defined. An octave is twice the frequency, right? Um, right. And a fifth, I think, is well-defined. Uh, and, uh, you know, a third is something. I mean, there is a pure third. But again, if you go up by thirds as opposed to going up by fifths, you won't wind up on the same note at the top. And this sort of rocked people's world when they realized this because it looks like it doesn't actually have the nice, neat, symmetrical, rational structure that you thought it did. Right. So you have to make choices when you're tuning a piano. My son, who's a piano player and a composer and a piano tuner, knows that you have to choose the temperament you're going to tune in because you have to make a compromise. If you just do, which most people do, kind of equal temperament, you're major thirds are going to be a little sharp. But if you make the major thirds perfectly pure thirds, then you can play fine in one key. But if you switch keys, it's things are going to sound off and weird and so on. So, right. so a, a, a good way to put this, which most people don't know, is that like uh, a D sharp is not the same thing as an E flat. Um, Interesting. And there are even keyboards which have both of those, you know, two options for that key in between D and E. One is the D sharp and the other is the E flat so that you can switch back and forth when you need to. So here's, here's another question, which is, if we were painting, yeah. nobody would be like, well, there must be a color between, you know, that we no one would say oh, orange yeah. has to be exactly between red and yellow. Yeah. Everyone would be like, well, yeah, of course. And it wouldn't rock anyone's world to be like, do you know that if you do the if you do orange, it's a little redder than people know. Like yeah. you'd be like, no, <laughs> can combine red and yellow to your heart's content. Paint however you think looks good. Yeah, and uh, then we'll all have a beer or something. So like the idea that when you go between D and E, it has to be exactly halfway. Like there's an infinite number of notes between. D yeah, and e, right, 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 exactly. And so play whichever one you like, man. What, <laughs> yeah. like, why did it? Why does it rock people's world? Well, sometimes sometimes harmonies sound bad to everybody. I mean, it's well. Sometimes yeah. combinations of color sound bad, that's but nobody true. says yeah. it's got to be exactly no, halfway right. between. I think what you start to realize is these ways of formalizing the content has limits, right? And there's always going to be more fine-grained, subtle discriminations underneath those formal distinctions that we have names for. Right. It's always going to be more continuous, and um, yeah, with painting it seems like there's fewer quantifiable i mean what would it be for a tone or a shade to be exactly halfway between two other shades because you already need a way to quantify it and with colors it's really not obvious unless you translate it into something like wavelengths or amounts of pigment you're mixing together or something like that if just looking at them you wouldn't be able to say this shade is exactly halfway between. You could say it's more or less or closer or less, but... And you can listen and you can know exactly halfway between, or is that just a... Um... You're right. I mean, there's the same artificiality in the measurement because you've 
you've decided to regard the sound waves as definitive of the tones. Right. And that's different from them sounding some way. In fact, I mean, Merleau-Ponty uses this example. When you play a major scale... Uh, and you just hear it naively. Da, 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 da. Naively, you're tempted to say those notes are all kind of evenly spaced out because they're where they belong, right? Right. <laughs> but in fact, two of those intervals are half the size as the others. Oh, interesting. So, right. And it makes it a major scale. So just listening naively, it since that sounds right you know, or familiar, you think, yeah, I mean, the spaces are all kind of equivalent or equal. Turns out, of course, they're not, and you learn that when you learn music. But um, now there's other levels at which people have tried to impose rules. Like, for example, when perspective entered into painting in the Renaissance, there were all kinds of rules that you were supposed to follow in order to produce the effect of depth and three-dimensionality. And, of course, it turns out that no set of rules is going to actually give you the best result. You have to break whatever rules you've made in order to make it look right. Because if you really follow some rules, uh, then a sphere in the middle of the picture, if it's over on the edge of the picture, is going to look like an oblong thing. Like with a wide-angle lens and a camera, people's heads at the edge of the picture end up being sort of stretched out. And you don't want that. So you want to, you know, draw it as a sphere, even though it's... uh, over on the edge where it ought to be stretched. So, uh, right, right. Yeah. So there's no, there's sort of the rules only take you so far. Um, I was thinking of a science fiction story. Somebody was telling me this might be a little bit of the premise of this new movie called Fingernails. Hmm. But the idea is that dating machines, dating algorithms, tell people who they should be with. Oh yeah. And and then I was thinking the 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 puzzles that we're getting into are like some people who grew up in such a society. And they meet someone and they kind of like them. And they're like, that's weird. Because uh-huh. the dating algorithm says, yeah, we're not compatible. <laughs> but I, I kind of like that person. Right. It's blowing my mind. Yeah, like yeah. But we would say like, well, no, you're, <laughs> you're a little too reliant upon the decisions made by the people who wrote the dating algorithm, yeah. which of course are limited and yeah. maybe okay. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's a philosophical conundrum that you could like someone not recommended by the algorithm unless you've decided to sort of fetishize the algorithm which you should and not only that but you know ask yourself how the algorithm got made in the first place it must have been designed in order to track somebody's intuitions about which is a good match and which which isn't it's a similar thing about you know when people have i don't know how many people really think this but it's tempting to naively think well when you set your camera to like no filter or no this or no that you're just getting the pure picture that takes the you know, picture of things and represents them as they really are. But somebody designed the camera. Yeah, they did, didn't they? <laughs> they designed the camera in order to give the result that's supposed to be true to your perception. And of course, camera photographed images are never really true to your perception in all kinds of ways, just like perspective painting on a flat surface is never going to capture depth of perception. Um, That'd be funny. For if, all kinds if, of reasons. Another funny science fiction story is... People start to notice this weird app on their phones that yeah. kind of it just makes people look like food, sort of like it just <laughs> oh, it just makes their, no. I'm making it up. It's a science fiction oh, story. Oh, oh, oh! <laughs> like <laughs> well, like makes people cheeks look like like meaty and stuff like oh. that. And then you realize oh. that the company that designed this app was staffed by cannibals. 
Um, <laughs> and it's, you're getting to look at the world as cannibals look at it. That's um, right. It looks delicious. <laughs> yeah, all, everybody just like like looks kind of like like it doesn't focus on their eyes. It focuses on the the thickness of their cheeks. I see. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Getting the flesh just right is very difficult because with these AI images, you know, they're pretty good at kind of just concocting images of people but it's often the skin that's weird it looks a little plasticky or it does and then a weird thing people do which would probably delight uh michelle foucault is they then get plastic surgery to make their faces (sighs) when photographed look like faces in digital photographs which is is such an odd thing to do but is real it's like this is like human chess players are starting to play chess more like computers the more they play yeah, computers. Yeah, is that true? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is true. And the other weird thing about AI-generated images, I don't know if I hope this isn't too off-topic, but they're getting better at it. But the way you could almost always spot a fake image, if you couldn't tell right away by looking at it, is that it was terrible at getting the number of fingers right. And the oh, shape that is of an old problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, apparently. And it's fascinating why. Because, again, here's what I suspect. There's discriminations that we make that we're not aware that we're making because we're so good at it, so obvious, like facial recognition. Yeah. You turn a picture of a face upside down and suddenly you can't see who it is, you know, or, right. or you have to you, you see an upside down face, do it the other way. You have no idea who it is. You turn it right side up and you go, oh, Elvis, right, or Elvis, something yeah. like that. But But a mandolin or a you know, a chair or whatever. It's perfectly good. So we're very good at the faces, the recognition of, and I guess hands we just take for granted because we think it's obvious what a hand looks like, right? But these algorithms were putting six, seven fingers on a hand. The fingers had the wrong shape. The joints wouldn't work. I guess when these programs, as it were, look at a bunch of pictures of people, Maybe it's just a lot easier to get vertical symmetry or noses or shoulders or whatever. And when it comes to fingers, it's kind of an open question how many fingers are going to be clustered at the end of the arm, you know, <laughs> whereas it seems perfectly obvious to us. Oh, I know. It just real thought of this. This uh, other thing about fingers is that they're and hands is that they're very hard to paint plausibly, believably. I can't do it. I'm, <laughs> I've tried. They, uh, there was an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum years ago uh, It was called Rembrandt, Not Rembrandt, and it was about distinguishing which of Rembrandt's paintings he actually painted because he had this mm-hmm. studio full of apprentices, uh-huh, and he would often do the face, and then an apprentice would fill out the rest of the picture. So it turns out there's no easy answer about which ones were real Rembrandts and which weren't, and a whole bunch of them got over-attributed so that the values would go up, of course. So um, there's a lot at stake in de-attributing paintings, you know, to famous right. painters because somebody's got it and now suddenly it's worth much less. But I was told by a curator, sister-in-law of mine, who said uh, one way you can spot subpar work on a portrait is by looking at the hand. And uh, the ones that Rembrandt himself didn't do often have what she called sausage fingers. Interesting. They... <laughs> Uh, sausage fingers that's not rembrandt right um Mm -hmm. so apparently it's very hard to do a hand really plausibly if you're painting it let's see all of this which is to say there's all kinds of stuff which seems so self-evident to us i mean if rembrandt was painting harvey weinstein he would do sausage fingers but only if the fingers look like sausages (laughs) that's right which they might have (laughs) yeah yeah. so um yeah a lot of this stuff just so intuitively obvious to us because our bodies are geared into the world and they give us this perceptual access to the world which is fine-tuned in an idiosyncratic way that we just think is natural and right 
Oh, I know. Uh, when you were talking about these different nervous systems, apparently, I mean, like octopuses, if that's the right plural, their brains, their nervous systems are running all through their legs and they're sort of like yeah. Yeah. thinking in their whole with their whole bodies. And so that's so alien. Uh, but how evolution winds up, you know, putting together an organism is so fascinatingly random and accidental that it's easy to forget how idiosyncratic we are. Uh, the way we think and the perceive. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Google um, before we wrap this up because it's okay. a science fiction novel that I really want to recommend oh, good. to our um, listeners mm -hmm. about uh, intelligent octopuses. Uh, Children of Time mm -hmm. is the one about spiders. Oh. And Children of Ruin is the one about octopuses. Oh, good. And they're both great. Oh, good. And if you're interested in reading a book where one of the characters has, an, has intelligent legs and where exactly... <laughs> their consciousness lies is a question that's the book for you and no knock on portrait of the of an artist as a young man but everybody's consciousness seems to basically be in their heads right and nobody's got intelligent legs so yep. it's a fine book Excellent. but it along that metric it's not as good as children of ruin by adrian tchaikovsky okay <laughs> so i wanted to also say about the high notes and low notes and the dark and the light thing i may have mentioned yes. this before but when the centigrade or celsius uh, temperature scale was first introduced, 100 was the freezing point of water and zero was the boiling point of water. And oh. it wasn't long before just about everybody said, this is crazy. <laughs> hot is more. Yeah. Cold is, yeah. <laughs> Obviously hot really is a higher number and cold is a yeah, lower number. You, right, right. You, this is madness. And it got, it got literally flipped around so that it was the other way around. But I'd right, like... They read that uh, Robert Frost poem um, about some say the world will end in fire, and they're like, "No, we oh, yeah. got to change." <laughs> yeah. I'd love to talk to the person who designed it that way, saying, "Just tell me, like, were were you kind of screwing with us by doing Were you sort right. of like, were you being mischievous, or is this, did this seem how it was right? Or maybe that person sort of thought, "Well, it's totally arbitrary, so it doesn't matter." So I'll just <laughs> right, they were wrong. Yeah, 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 but he got it wrong. I have a little bit of a kind of mild synesthesia thing, I think, oh, because cool. I will often think what that color is seventeen. Kind of orangey. Um, nice. Yeah. So, but uh, I, I'm, I haven't tested myself on this. Like, I think to really test it, I'd have to write down those associations and see if they stay constant for long periods oh, of time. Right. Maybe but, your synesthesia just changes. Maybe it does. In which case, I'm coming up with arbitrary associations, you know. Of, but but I don't think so. Tuesday and Thursday have always been red. Thursday's a darker red than Tuesday. And, you know, Wednesday's blue. Uh, there's there's guitar strings where the light gauge uh, are in a blue package and the medium gauge strings are in a red package. And I've always thought that is obviously backwards, and I can't believe they got uh -huh. it wrong. I mean, blue is obviously medium gauge, and red is obviously light gauge. Uh, it seems self-evident to me, and I constantly am but, getting it wrong. But my question, my question is, if it changes from day to day, why do you assume that it's arbitrary? Why couldn't it just be a real oh, thing? Oh, I see. That changes from yes, day to day? I've got a sick. I've got a, a a kinetic synesthesia. It's in motion. <laughs> yeah, I, I have. I don't see any a priori reason why that couldn't be true. Right. Um, well, that's right. Who knows? I mean. I don't think it means very much. I mean, some people have a much stronger... Oh, I didn't sense. say a mental... Yeah, 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 right. I, I mean... I'm just saying um, it, could, it could be real. <laughs> but it would be embarrassing if I found out that it wasn't consistent across time. There's some parts of it that I know are consistent across time because I've always thought, you know, the days of the week have colors and the months pretty much. Right. But sometimes, not always. So, um, 
little bit. See, I think, <laughs> I do think that you shouldn't be embarrassed if on Tuesday, <laughs> Wednesday is purple, but on Wednesday, Wednesday oh, is right. green. It's just a different I don't rule. Think that should, I don't think that should be embarrassing. Maybe today is always, whatever day it is, is always a certain color. I, yeah, but I'm sure that's not true. In I hope case. it's a beautiful color. And with that, <laughs> I'm hoping well, your you, day Eric. is a beautiful color. Um, <laughs> we're going to bring this one to a close. Okay. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carman. It's edited by me, Taylor Carman, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and the cover art is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.